The Colored Pages Book Club is a bi-weekly show where two old friends talk about fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from colorful backgrounds. The two hosts, Marcy and Akko, are both ridiculous and enthusiastic about using their favorite books to talk about their own lives, talk shit, and explore bigger social themes. It's essentially your favorite book club, plus all of the tomfoolery and shenanigans that one might expect from two long friends catching up. Hello and welcome to episode 124 of the Greater Than Code podcast. My name is Coraline Ada Emke. I'm joined today by my very good friend and wonderful individual, Jessica Kerr. Good morning! I am happy to be here today with Abdi Grimm. Good morning, and I am overjoyed to be here today with Janelle Klein. Everyone is very happy today, so I will be happy too. And I'm here with Jamie Hampton. Thanks, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Helen Needham. Helen is the founder of Me Decoded, um, which is an online platform where neurodivergent people can share their stories. Helen is autistic and is an advocate promoting the value of neurodivergent thinking. She's also currently a management consultant in financial services and a former and maybe current Java developer. Thanks for coming on the show, Helen. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. It's, I'm excited to join you guys and chatting about neurodiversity and seeing where it takes us. So Helen, we always open the program with the standard copyrighted, trademarked, otherwise <laughs> famous question. Um, what is your superpower and how did you develop it? So I've been thinking long and hard about this one. And one of my superpowers or the closest I get to a superpower is being able to take abstract information and connect the dots and see things that other people don't see, which comes in really handy in my job. I've honed that over the years from trying to chase data around investment banks, seeing how it's transformed and how you can use it to bring about new insights and knowledge. And that sounds like it's really valuable. Um, I can see the value of that as a developer. I'm curious about how that works as a management consultant. Like, do you have the opportunity to exercise that superpower in your day job today? Completely. So I get called in when banks want to do something different. So it's usually where they need to figure something out. A lot of what I now do is help them to work out their strategies for bringing about business change, technological change or organizational change. And just going hunting for information, whether it's stored in a database or someone's brain, and being able to go on a treasure hunt across the organization, pull it together and inform a future strategy of how they can do things better um, comes in pretty handy. So you can chase information across technology and people? Oh, to me, they're one and the same. <laughs> it's just a different way of accessing information. And one, you write a SQL query, and the other one, you ask them questions. And a lot of what I do is trying to decode people. So I meet new people, and you spend your time trying to figure out and get information from them. And it's a bit like writing a query, working out what are the right questions to extract the information you need. And it's one and the same to me. To be clear, I once tried asking someone a question as a SQL query, and that doesn't really work very often. So I don't recommend doing that as a general practice. Yeah, no, probably not, not asking them for their select statement, but uh, being able to translate that into into English language. But it's still, what can you tell me about the work that you do? Tell me about the information you receive. Where does that information go? What changes do you make to it? And these are all very similar types of activities. So you're following the information through the business, through the technology and the people and in and out? Wow. Yes, because sometimes people will lead, send you to go and speak to another person. Sometimes they will send you to a system. Sometimes it's a database or a document. Um, being able to extract information from each of those different sources and connect it together, it's pretty similar. Um, when you start breaking it down into its component parts, it's just people take more work. So they tend to like to 
have small talk before they give you information. And that's the challenge for me. People don't have well-defined APIs either, do they? Oh, no. No, no, no. What you start finding is that when you start working out what motivates them, what their fears are, their aims and their ambitions, you can then start using that as a way to work out how best to interact. And so over the years, by decoding people, for me, that's how I connect with people. It's not really by the social. It's more by the trying to, to understand who they are and what's the best way to ask questions. I've been thinking about this idea of decoding people, and I'm curious how you develop a mental model of, of a person's head. So you mentioned kind of thinking about their motivations and the things that they want in trying to extract information. Can you describe kind of an example of one of these mental models that you might have of what's in a person's mind and how that might translate into questions? It's not a perfect approach, so I don't know if I'm able to give away all the secrets in a, in a shortly condensed, non-vague, but I'll try because I didn't do it as a series of steps. But So so people laugh at me. I Over seven years of, or ten years of doing my job, it, it starts with, in the first meeting, when I get to meet someone, a client or a team person, you have very open questions. So you sit down and you ask them about what do they think success looks like? What are the biggest problems that they think needs to be overcome? And the way that people answer that as a very open question, they start to touch on things. And that's when you start working out what motivates them. As you start doing that, you then start drilling further into the query and you start asking contextual questions. So it, it's more how, and, it, and it's a very, like, from open questions into more targeted, focused questions, and to understand more about them, the context, and what they think of the context around them. Once you start getting that information, it's then working out which bits to explore further. And then when you start to ask information about something, else that you need is then linking it back. So for instance, if I go in and I say to someone, and I've got to solve a problem around they need a new business case for bringing about a big change project, you go in and you'll say, okay, so and start with the basics around, well, what is the objective of the program? How do you measure success? And then as they start talking, so some people might say, right, we want to rationalize the number of systems that we have, somebody else, it's much more political because they're wanting to leave a legacy. And how they answer a question gives you clue into their driving and motivation. And then that helps you to then frame your subsequent questions in a way that allows you to draw further to get to the information that you really need. So it's kind of almost phased sequencing of questions. I guess what I'm hearing you say is that when you're listening to these answers to these open-ended questions, that what you're listening for is a model of how that particular human is actually motivated and what is the undercurrent of what they really want as opposed to the surface of what they say. And that once you build a mental model of how that human is actually motivated, you can get a better picture of how to be successful and what success really looks like. Because sometimes those motivations are about leaving a legacy or, you know, some kind of undercurrent identity driven thing is what the person actually wants. And when you're looking at trying to figure out what questions to ask and what to drill into, it sounds like you model it almost like a tree. Like, so I start with these open-ended questions and then I want to figure out what areas to drill down into and how to help these people be successful, but realizing as humans, they have these other kind of undercurrent motivations. And so you're trying to decode what those kind of undercurrent motivations are at the same time. Does that sound right? That's better articulated than I, I can say. Yes, I, that is right. I, you know, and it's also, it's how you then phrase your question. So if you've got somebody who's very task orientated, you'd focus on tasks. If you are 
have somebody that's much more about people than and, and talk about other people, then you will start asking them more questions around who are the key people you need to go and talk to, what are the key factors, can they make an introduction for you? And so that helps you to navigate what approach and questioning style is likely to work with them. So let's say two different people that you talk to give you dissonant information. One person tells you one thing and another person tells you another thing. How do you handle that? So, so that happens all the time. <laughs> you present two different views and, and you bring it back because a large part of when you, and this is why people are harder to work with than uh, databases, because there is that subjective element to it. And people will always choose what they want to tell you, either because they have a certain outcome that they want and, you know, versus somebody else. So a lot of the time when you are going hunting for information, that is a big part of trying to work it out. And it took me a long time because, you know, for when I first started work, I think I probably treated a lot of people like a database, you know, and didn't really spend time thinking about the personal motivations. And I got a lot of pushback where people said, oh, you're a bit abrasive. Or one person nicknamed me Wire Wolf because there was just no time that I took to actually consider them as a person. And if I couldn't get what I wanted, you know, in terms of in the information, I just keep drilling them and quite quickly realized that wasn't a very successful strategy because humans aren't databases and they need a little bit more love and attention than a code base. Helen, it strikes me um, that your approach is very structured and methodical, but also requires a great deal of empathy. I think in order to build a model of how someone is communicating, how someone is thinking about a problem, that requires a great deal of empathy. I'm very curious about the intersection of that requirement for empathy with your own experience with being neurodivergent. I know there's a lot of talk about people on the autism spectrum as that intersects with empathy. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what empathy looks like for a neurodivergent person. And I'd be really interested to hear your experience with that. There has been so much talk about autistic people can't be empathetic. And I think there's a lot of debate now uh, that is showing and research that is actually showing that autistic people can be empathetic. And actually, in some cases, they can be over empathetic in that. So a lot of the time you may react to a situation because the emotion is overwhelming. I've been reading a book which is actually questioning what is empathy. And it talks about hot empathy and cold empathy. And I think that overall, the concept of empathy, what it is, the definition of it, I think people are still working through that. So in terms of the work that I do in decoding people and breaking down what they say or how they react, I'm always remembering things that have been said in conversations or you know, and I can remember snippets from conversations six months ago, and then a new piece of information comes in. To me, that's not empathy. That's just remembering and taking clues from what they've said, how they've said it, and connecting the dots. It's a kind of deduction? Completely. There's a lot of autistic people, particularly women, who spend a lot of time what we call masking so you don't necessarily see many of the autistic traits and behaviors because they have been taking their cues from people around them. And so it's almost in order to fit in with people, you spend a lot of your time and effort taking clues from people around you. And over the years, to be able to succeed in my business, which is a very people-centered business, that is how I get by because I can't rely on social charm to form connections. So you have to almost go a level below to understand why they're saying the things they do because quite often people don't make sense. In you know, for many years, I really struggled with people said one thing, but they acted in a completely different way. And it was only when I started spending a lot more time trying to understand a how to connect with them i now have almost a recipe for when i meet with someone 
as to how I will engage them over time to form a connection. And, and it's honed over time. Um, and it's the same with new clients and big change projects because uh, whilst we're all different, I think we're also all driven by very similar factors, although in different niches. It strikes me that you've had to be very deliberate about building an interface between you and the world. And maybe what I'm hearing is that people who are not neurodivergent may find it easier and not have to be very deliberate. But as a survival skill, as a coping skill, you've had to be very deliberate about that process. Completely. And it's trial by error. Thankfully, the one thing as a management consultant is I keep moving from project to project and client to client. So it was a bit like Groundhog Day. You could start a project, you try out your new strategies. It failed. I guess, you know, fail fast. That's definitely been a personal life lesson in that, you know, it tends to make it to about three months and then things weren't going quite so well. And so the next time you then add to your sets of strategies and you work on the people connectivity because I can do the job, but quite often me and people tend to fall out, particularly in the workplace. So yeah, I, it, it is a very deliberate action, which is why new people, new situations or conflict situations can be so overwhelming because it requires so much more mental energy. And just for me to get through the day job and just in general, I'm always thinking and going through various scenarios in, in my mind. That's got to be really emotionally difficult too, of going through these experiences of feeling like disconnected and an outlier in these contexts and being able to kind of take that in and go, I am special because of my skills and my way of seeing. I've had these coping techniques that I've learned to develop of coming up with ways to model things better so I can interact with the world. And I can take these experiences and these lessons learned to this new context and try these things. But in between that, you have to work through this emotional challenge of failure and learning and kind of accepting what happened in that context and moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like of kind of overcoming those hurdles and finding your strength in yourself? I only discovered that I was or I was only diagnosed as autistic two years ago. So for much of my life at school, I was quite often ridiculed and bullied for being different. I was a nerd. As I went to university, the language changed. That's when I became a geek. Then going into the workplace, I kept thinking I was going to reinvent myself. And then you'd get the, the comments about being aloof or difficult or abrasive. And over about 15 years, I hadn't quite realized why. And I think the harder I tried, because outside of that environment, people know me as someone who's exceedingly funny, who's passionate, who's loyal, you know, and it was a very different me. But in the workplace, I could just never bring that to bear. And I always seemed to be the person that everyone else went for lunch or kind of drinks together. And I'd sit there and go, but I would never be invited. And it would often take me two years in an organization when I'd made friends with one person who then introduced me to everybody else. And it's been a repetitive pattern and a repetitive pattern of falling out with people, which is why the strategies came about. And I started to think and believe I was difficult and that I was unlikable and that I didn't belong. And the more I struggled, the more I started to be held back and I became crippled with anxiety. And then five years ago, my son was diagnosed as autistic. We went through a very tough time with him because he was struggling in school. And then it was a bit of a light bulb because the strategies that we were using for him and the things that he was struggling with, I inadvertently started realizing that actually I could bring more of that into my workplace and that changed how I interacted with people. So instead of being confrontational in a working group or group meeting, which is just, I can't stand group meetings and that's always where a lot of attention comes. Now I get people to email me before a meeting, particularly with something new. So discovering that I was autistic is suddenly things made sense. 
And the strategies I built up just to not be difficult turns out that are strategies that people who are autistic tend to use. And then you start to accept yourself and you start to realize I'm not difficult, I'm different. And actually, all of the self-help books and the life coaching and the therapy and to try and become a social butterfly is just wasted effort because that's not me. And it's about learning to accept who I am. And actually, you know, if you're going to spring new information on me and I've gone in expecting you to follow one path and you suddenly veer off at 90 degrees, I'm probably not going to respond well. But if you send me it via email, with set reasons why, then I'm more open to discuss. And so that is now how things have changed for me and realized that the coping strategies that I had to understand people is what actually makes me really good at my job. The things that were preventing me from fully bringing that to bear, which is social engagement, I've outsourced to one of the sociable team members in my team. So realizing that actually I don't need to do it all myself, and if I need someone to be sociable, we now have we have scheduled social slots and I get somebody else in my team to sort out my team socializations for me so that we have a way of making that happen. That's really great. So you can find people that are good at those particular skills and that you can also interface well with and that can have an understanding of how you work. And then in the same process of building mental models of these different people, you can understand kind of the different capabilities on your team and how you can work together to be successful and to see see yourself as this human that is different. And by being different, brings a lot of unique capabilities to the table that others don't necessarily have. And that's really special. Like you contribute something really special. Completely. I think realizing that we accept that different people specialize in different professions. So, you know, some people become tree surgeons, some people become heart surgeons, they each employ different skills. But we expect everybody to have the same types of social skills. And and the reality, when you start to realize that actually social skills is as much of a specialist skill as data analysis, and actually you partner someone with very good social skills and someone with data analysis skills, and between you, you collaborate to achieve something so much greater. And this has now allowed me, I now manage teams of up to 30 people, which I never thought would ever happen. And my deputies get an opportunity to be part of conversations with senior clients or as a management consultant, there's a lot of business development. I don't want to do that. I know what needs to be done, but I don't want to go and sit and wine and dine a client I don't know. But I've got a lot of juniors who want an opportunity to let themselves shine. And so I give them that opportunity and we collaborate to achieve more together than we would do if I was trying to force myself to be the sociable person who gets everybody on side. I think a lot of what you just said about understanding yourself was really beautiful. And um, one of the things that was really striking to me was how, what you said about like having these coping strategies that you were kind of already doing and then discovering that these were coping strategies that autistic people use. And so I think that it's really interesting that you developed some of the same strategies like on your own. And I guess what my question is, is like, what was it like for you when you were first starting to kind of interface with the rest of this community as a whole? I think there is very something very special about finding your tribe, right? Finding people who understand you, who have had similar experiences, both external experiences and internal feelings. And that, it was like a big weight off my shoulders because I think that really reinforced the, my belief in myself. And when I first became aware of the neuro neurodiversity and the neurodivergent community it was through my son and finding the support to him and, and it is the most supportive community that I, I think I have ever come across because everybody has struggled everybody wants to be there to support each other and they're all rooting for each other as I became more in touch with other people who are neurodivergent so that includes 
people who are dyslexic, dyspraxic, have ADHD, bipolar, OCD, I started to realize that there was a very common theme, and that was so many people had a very negative self-image from having grown up, particularly if they were diagnosed later in life, you know, where they'd refer themselves or they'd been told they were stupid, lazy, clumsy, you know, weird, and they had struggled not knowing why, and then they'd been diagnosed and realized why they'd been struggling for so long, and then seen them transform their personal self-view. And for me, finding a community going through that process as we start to understand ourselves better and understand that in order to find our place in the world, it's not necessarily about changing who we are. It's about working with the world around us to say, what can we do differently to bring out the best in who we already are? And that has been the most empowering thing for me, particularly when I've been able to help people who are going through that journey now. And that's what Media Coded is. It's a community of people finding themselves, sharing their stories, which then encourages other people to own who they are. And if they have been struggling with a negative self-image, realizing that actually there are positives and there are people who are succeeding and who understand you. I think it's so important to bring those stories to a broader audience too. I remember a, a thing that happened to me recently. I was at our technology summit and a young woman in college, maybe 20 years old, um, was talking to me about something and I really needed a cigarette. I'm a smoker, but I'm also someone with bipolar and smoking is one of the ways, one of the tools that I have in my toolbox for mood regulation. So, um, I kind of apologized to her. I was like, can we please take this conversation outside so I can have a cigarette? And I, I was like, I'm sorry. I know smoking is bad, but you know, this is the reason that I do it or part of the reason I do it. And she lit up. She was like, oh, my God, you're bipolar, too. And she had not seen a role model. She had no framework for understanding that someone with severe bipolar disorder could have a successful career, could be making their way through life. She hadn't heard the story. She hadn't met anyone like that. That really inspired me to be more open about my own mental health issues. And I think creating that sense of belonging and also creating that sense of this person has succeeded, not just despite their neurodivergence, but in some ways because of their neurodivergence, that can be so inspiring to people. Completely. And this is part of why I do what I do, because I think we need to have a neurodiversity conversation. Too many people are quiet because they fear being stigmatized or they don't know their neurodivergence. And when your voice is silent, people just see the challenges and you may experience that yourselves but the more we talk up the more that we own who we are and start to connect with each other the more you realize that a you're not the only one and b that when you come together to talk about the positive aspects and the strategies that you can utilize to support the more challenging parts and bring your ideas together the more you change things for yourselves and for the world around you you know, I've started a employee neurodiversity network at the company I work for. So we now actively talk about neurodiversity in the workplace, everywhere from our CEO and head of HR down to our graduate associates. And I get so many people coming to me going, oh, my God, I'm dyslexic. It's so amazing to see us having an open conversation. I had somebody come to me last week and excitedly tell me she has OCD. My mom is bipolar as well. And, you know, we have conversations where it just changes the whole light of it. And there are tough times. We can't ignore the tough times. But there are so many other things that are just amazing that we can embrace and tap into by allowing ourselves to be us without the social obstacles that can prevent us from bringing that to the world around us. The social obstacles, like you're not supposed to talk about these things. So social obstacles, where do I start? Um, so there are a, a, a lot. <laughs> no, sorry, Jessica, it's, it's not a... <laughs> well, um, that's, that's a clue yeah. that I'm going to learn something. Yeah, and 
But if we think about it, when you recruit people into jobs, it's quite often an interview. That's a test of your social skills. And if somebody comes into the office and, you know, they don't look you in the eye, they instantly, you, you may assume that it's, they're not trustworthy. If you think about how we conduct business in our day to day, a lot of it is group conversations, group meetings. We go for team lunches, which is social. And so it's how we go about the day to day, which has a lot of expectations. So for instance, for dyslexics, reading and writing, that is a big part of our job. But if we started saying to people, well, actually, it isn't about writing long essays. We can have text-to-speech apps. You know, things start changing. And, and when I talk about the social obstacles, I think it's the society around us and the expectations of how things should be done it is more what I'm referring to. Thank you. So I have a, a bit of a follow-up to that. There is a conversation in the industry now about paying more attention, like in interviews particularly, interviewing candidates, not just looking at the technical skills, uh, not just looking at that they know the right buzzwords and things like that, but also paying attention to their EQ, you know, their emotional intelligence and that kind of thing. And, you know, because because we're starting to recognize that working together, you know, the people in their relationships are the thing that actually makes the team succeed. How do we do that? How do we put more focus on that? without accidentally excluding neurodivergent people because they may relate differently or, or whatnot? It comes down to what do we mean by EQ? And in terms of assessing people from that, quite often I find that if you could have a open question and dialogue in an interview where somebody comes forward and says, actually, I'm autistic, and you have a conversation which says, okay, so... What strategies do you need to, you know, work for you in the workplace? You know, how do you best work, right? And, and a great example that I had is that one of the contributors on Media Coder talked about she went into a new job with an investment bank. They took time to understand who she was as an individual. And I think that when we structure our interviews to think about different people's needs, and create a safe space in which somebody can say, I am autistic, and this is what works best for me. And you encourage that two-way dialogue without fear of being judged or stigmatized. That changes the conversation, you know, and, and there are ways in which you can do that. Because if you, if you send to somebody who's to say, right, you can share some of the questions that you want to discuss in, in, an interview ahead of time, so it allows their brains to prep for what you want to talk about, and you will be much more successful in having that conversation as opposed to just trying to surprise them on the fly, which to me shows a lack of EQ on the interviewer's part, thinking that everybody is sociable and will respond that way. That kind of awareness of self-awareness of this is what works for me, this is how I interact with people, and this is what I'm really good at, and this is what is expensive for me in like processing. That's what I want in a coworker. I want to be able to talk openly about how can we collaborate well together. That is a kind of EQ. Yeah. And and that's why I say different people have different definitions for EQ and, and what it is. And I do think that's where you can talk about who you are and have an open dialogue with, with your team members about how to work successfully and, and collaborate. And it may not be about, I'm always going to understand you, but it's a, being brave enough to go, do you know what? In these situations, I'm probably not going to be the most collaborative, right? Or considerate of, of your needs and your points of view. You ask people if they have a guide. Do you mean like, yeah. Like a manual? Oh, I think everyone should come with a how-to guide. Um, like, is that what Me Decoded is about? There was parts of that. Absolutely. Kind of Dummies 101 for Helen Needham. I think everybody should do. It, it's. Uh, you can tell I'm getting all excited about this now because I think the world would be so different if everybody, just as you start working creates a how-to guide so we take the guesswork out of teamwork. 
it would be amazing. You could put it on your employee network and you go, here's my 10 rules for working with me. On me decoded, you'll actually find my 10 rules under the working with me. And it's a series that I've had other people trying to do. And what you realize is that the more you do this, the more that you start to share it with each other, the more that it facilitates these types of conversations. And it's actually workplace adjustment passports is one of the things that is quite often utilized for people who are neurodivergent in the workplace. But for me, I don't want it just to be people who are neurodivergent because that's the whole stigma thing. Like you come with a special, everybody needs help. You know, everybody has a different way of working. Everybody has things that works for them or doesn't. So if we start all started writing that down, you know, kind of our help guides, amazing. Actually, uh, where I work at Citrix, we do that for new managers. So when our new manager is hired, actually one of their take-home assignments for the interview process is actually doing a small slide deck about their strengths and weaknesses and their preferences for interpersonal communication. I think it'd be a great idea to broaden that to everybody. I love that idea. I love it too. I actually do have a physical guide for me, not for how to work with me, which is why I'm like, oh, I want to bring this into like other areas of my life. But I have like very um, intense anxiety and I actually do have like a physical like paper guide that's like if I'm having a panic attack, because like if you've never been around me when I'm having a panic attack, it can be very scary. Like I've had people be like, I'll call an ambulance for you because you're obviously having like a medical emergency right now. And so um, like I literally have like these are the things you should not do because they will make it worse. These are the things that you could do that will like not make it worse. Um, and I find that really helpful especially like in a state where I like can't communicate those things. Like I've only ever thought about that. And like, this is a particular specific problem I have that I want to educate people about. But I love the idea of like, this is just what I do in my life that I want to educate people about. Helen, would you mind sharing just a, a few points from your guide to give it some examples? Please. <laughs> so one of the things is around picking your moments. And if somebody is going to bring a new idea to me, there are some signs to look out for. If I've got a deadline the next day, that's not the moment. Um, and so because I'm likely to react quite negatively, what I tend to suggest to people is if it's slightly left field, buy me a coffee and, and gently broach it to me on a coffee and then follow up with further details. If it's completely kind of new, give me pre-warning and pre-book a time slot and probably bring me some chocolates just to change the rules of the meeting. So quite often, if I don't want to be in a work mode, then we need to go outside of the office if it's considering something new because then you've changed your environment. So picking your moments, choosing the environment are, are, are key things. And just learning and to judge my anxiety levels, because if I'm highly anxious, and I do have anxiety quite a lot, um, which cycles don't come to me in an anxious moment, probably wait a day when I'm more under control. But that's one. I think the other one is also allowing me to go through what I call the hurricane process, is that when I'm in a new situation or I've got a new challenge, what I do is I go into fact-finding mode. And if somebody's asking me to structure and rationalize things and articulate it at that point in time, I'm not going to be able to. I almost need to go through my hurricane. And, and that could last for weeks where I just focus on one piece. My husband knows. He calls it the Helen moments because it's almost like I go down a rabbit hole and I forget about the fact I've got kids, that I need to eat, that I need to sleep, because I'm so focused on trying to make sense of the chaos. Because if I've got something that's unstructured or unsolved, then I have this very strong urge to bring structure to it. And until I've got that structure, I'm going to be very difficult to have a conversation with, and I'm probably going to be slightly more snappy. So just give me a wide berth is probably the other one of the other rules guides that's incredibly self-aware i wish everyone could be as self-aware of like what they need as you are 
Thank you. As I said, it's come because the, the alternative wasn't really an option for me because I'll never forget. So, so knowing when to, to give people your rules is also another skill I've had to learn. What I found with one of my previous team members was that I stood there on day one within half an hour of meeting them. I was like, right, I'm autistic and here's all my rules. And you could just see them kind of going, I don't know what to do with this. There is a lot of having to test and recalibrate. And over the years, because the fallout from when it goes wrong has been so severe that actually you become forced to become quite self-aware. But yeah, I, I, I would love to see more people become self-aware and engaging in conversations like this, because I think when we start treating people like people, neurodivergence, non-neurodivergent or neurotypicals, we start to realize that everybody likes something different. We all struggle with things that we don't quite get. I know there's a lot of people that may struggle with some components. And when we start feeling comfortable enough to talk about what we're struggling with, what we need to be successful, I think that really helps us all. So I'd love to see that. I'd like to ask more about Me Decoded. We kind of just started to get into it, but I'd love to hear about a little bit what you're trying to accomplish with it and how you decided to start it. Yeah. Me Decoded, quite simply, it's it's a place where anybody could write a blog and post, subject to to me reviewing it, because I think sometimes some of the things people want to post about may not be quite relevant or appropriate. So I've had to date, I think, about 30 different contributors who are neurodivergent, so dyslexic, dyspraxic, hyperlexic, um, bipolar, autistic, have ADHD where they share their stories or experiences or insights that are relevant to neurodiversity. So challenges they've faced in the workplace, how they've overcome that, their personal experience of life before and after diagnosis and the diagnosis process. I had somebody who wrote about the challenges of open plan offices and and why that didn't allow them to be their most productive place. So The whole mandate is that I want to bring together a community of neurodivergent people and allies who are given a glimpse as to what it is like to be neurodivergent, the things we struggle with, the things that we feel that we're really good at, the changes that we want to see in the world, how better to work with us, and to champion companies and organizations that are helping to make this possible so that we can collectively raise awareness about neurodiversity and get people to understand some of the things that we potentially haven't had an opportunity to share with the world. And what's been quite interesting and unexpected is the number of people who have come across me decoded and then found the strength to share their own story and make sense of their diagnosis. So I've had two or three people who went through the diagnosis process and had wrote about their experience on me decoded, which then gave them the courage to open up to their families. So so that's in essence what it is. And I'm always looking for new people to write stories, to share their experiences, to add to the collective knowledge that we have on the site. At the end of every episode, we take a moment to reflect on the conversation that we've had and maybe highlight things that really resonated with us or things that we want to think about or act on as a result of the conversation. Who would like to go first? I could go. I'm really, really excited about this how-to guide to work with me idea. Like, rarely is my reflection such a clear action item of like I'm gonna go back to my team and like talk about this and talk about like how we can work with this on our team I just I had mentioned this before we started recording but I had um like a work offsite last week that was kind of difficult my anxiety was like very high during it because while everyone at my company is really great the way that it was planned just like triggered my anxiety in a lot of ways like we didn't have enough breaks and we didn't have like we weren't eating food at regular enough intervals and it was triggering my anxiety and just like this uncertainty they didn't give us the 
um, schedule until right before. And I was like, I don't, I'm going on this thing and I don't know what's going to happen. And it was just, it made me very anxious for things that like, I think didn't affect other people the way that it did for me. And so when we were talking about this idea of working with each other, especially at a remote company, which we normally are, I think there's huge value in being able to say like, these are the things that like I need to prioritize and be able to compare that to like, these are the things that someone else needs to prioritize and use that as a way to really connect with people on like in a way that's safe. And then because of that, probably in a way that's like deeper. So I'm really excited about that idea. Thank you. I'm going to skip reflection because Jamie said everything I wanted to say. No. That's my takeaway too. I'm not going to say me too. I was like, oh, I'm going to take that away, but I'm not going to have to reflect on it because someone else will. Yeah. That's actually a little bit why I was like, I'll go first. (laughs) (laughs) Put that in your guide. My reflection is that because Helen doesn't like have this like natural instinct for social interactions that we expect people to have, uh, she instead makes a deliberate process out of decoding people and figuring out consciously how to interact with each person individually. And this turns out to be more powerful than the instinct in a lot of ways, because when, when you're taking deliberate actions instead of instinctive, then you can deliberately learn and improve. Um, it's much harder to grow your instincts to be more accurate than to grow conscious deliberation. Sometimes when the default option isn't an option, you find a better option. Uh, the one thing that I jotted down was uh, just the, the thing about not, it's not about changing who you are. It's about working with the world while you still are who you are. I think it's really easy for me to relate to this experience of feeling different, feeling rejected by the world and having to figure out my own anchor, my own center of gravity and feeling proud and excited about being me. The experience of hurricane, of being so obsessed with trying to figure something out, figure out a problem. It's like the story of my life. (laughs) And the challenges that come with, in my case, the obsession with a research problem and being excited by the progress of continually increasing clarity that, you know, that never really ends being obsessed with the hurricane such that it becomes harder and harder to engage with the world the more different I become through that process. At the same time, I look at myself and the things I've been able to discover and do in being able to take in that hurricane, to be able to process the hurricane, to see those connections. I feel like I have a similar gift that you do with being able to like take in all these inputs and find the connections and all the things in a capacity that the vast majority of humans can't necessarily do. And to see that as a gift in myself, to see what I bring to the table and to see myself as special, even though I'm different, to be able to orient around that, I think is a huge thing that we all have to go through in our lives to find our own special gifts, to find our own different to own our full selves. And even if we feel initially rejected by the world, that that doesn't mean that we have to reject ourselves. So your story of your own transformation through that, of owning your own special skills and talents, of owning your ability to take in the hurricane, I think is really, really beautiful and inspiring. And anyone else out there that's just struggling with that challenge of orienting around themselves and their own special gifts, like we all have unique special gifts. I see you as an inspiration to all those people. So thank you for sharing your story. So I think it's probably one last thing that I want to share that probably is easier now for me, now that my, my social bridge is not in the room, but it's also about the importance of support and understanding. You know, I've just gone through 90 minutes with my husband sat next to me, and he has made it possible for me to find the courage to be me and is there behind me 
as I step into what can be a quite a scary situation. And if I think to the beginning of the podcast and the person that was afraid to open my mouth and where I am now, that wouldn't have happened without his support and backing. And I think on a broader scale, it's when we support each other and understand each other for who they are. He embraces me, not despite who I am, but because of who I am, and really is behind me to support me in being the very best me that I can and to hold me up without wanting to be recognized for it. And I think for me, the biggest takeaway from today and what's been made possible is that he is my silent hero. And I think the world needs more silent heroes holding each other up and supporting each other through our moments where maybe we're not bringing our best self. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you've shared with us today. My pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to be able to hopefully start a few more neurodiversity conversations amongst your, your listeners. And I look forward to seeing what the sparks next. And it's just great to have an opportunity to have conversations like these, because I think with more conversations like this, we really can change the world. Speaking of conversations like this, if you would donate to our Patreon at any amount at patreon.com slash greater than code, then you'll get an invitation to our Slack channel. On the Greater Than Code Slack channel, it's pretty low volume, but it's a very high quality conversation. We talk about things in tech and things outside of tech with a lot of respect and thoughtfulness. And Helen, you will get an invitation as a guest. And if you would like to join us there, that would be wonderful. And we can continue this conversation about neurodiversity.